In my 32nd year, I felt incredibly sorry for myself. I was getting my first divorce, was living in a one-room studio in Uptown. My theater company was imploding over ego-driven bullshit. I drank myself into a state of suicidal yearning. It was a, it was a rough year. I called my mom. Mom is that voice of reason in good and bad times. Yeah, this has been a really shitty year. Maybe I should move back to Kansas. How old are you? She asked. I said, 32. She said, in 32 years you've lived on the planet, how many of those years were bad? I thought about it for a minute. Really bad? Two. No. Three. Three years. Why? Well, three out of 32 is a pretty solid track record, she said. Seems to me that you weathered those other bad years and had good years to spare. Maybe you decide to quit wallowing in how bad this year has been and get to work on next year, because based on your experience, you probably have another cluster of good years in store. Some have the Dalai Lama. Others have a priest or a shelf of self-help books. I have my mom. My 55th year, or the specter of 2020, was a rough year for so many people in the world, it's almost a joke. The whole year has been covered in shit, from the campaign to unseat the least capable and most destructive president in my lifetime, to three months in, a pandemic shutting down the planet and economic hardship most of us have only read about in Steinbeck novels, 2020 looks like the toilet bowl moments after a morning constitutional from a night of White Castle and rum. Sure, the act of comparing one's life with those around is a narcissistic, self-loathing experiment best suited for recently jilted lesbians and Instagram junkies, but while the entire world has been burning down in both literal and figurative ways, 55 has been a damn good year for me. In January... I was well into my year and a half managing a casino on the corner of I-15 in Tropicana. I'd done my due diligence and training, and had hit the sweet spot of knowing enough about the business to be an effective leader on the floor. I knew my high rollers and had figured out the best approach to dealing with meth addicts and prostitutes. I could fix 90% of the machines, could process a jackpot inside of four minutes consistently. Then came the pandemic and the economic shutdown of Las Vegas in March. Most were laid off and in free fall, but I'd stumbled into working for one of two gambling corporations in Nevada that committed to keeping the payroll rolling despite losing millions per day. Three months of closure saw me coming into work every day, cleaning the bar and the machines, and hanging out to make sure no one ransacked the place while it was closed. I did a lot of writing in my office during that time. In terms of personal tragedy, my 19-year-old nephew Ryan overdosed in a parking lot in April, and virus be damned, Dana and I flew out the next day to help my sister. We reopened the casino in Vegas in June. Seven months of balancing life in a pandemic with idiots motivated to gamble, arguing with people about the necessity to wear masks, and submitting essays to everyone. Getting paid to write, even in small increments, was a genuine drug. Over the summer, both Dana and I were asked to write for an anthology of essays. Las Vegas writers writing about Las Vegas. It was a boost, man. Don't get me wrong. The casino gig was solid and for the most part enjoyable. Getting paid to write words and sentences was fucking delicious. The book came out in October, launched with a Zoom-esque gathering. The casino gig, while solid and simple, was becoming dull. 
wrote, combining the fact that my best and meager talents were not usable during a pandemic in a struggling casino, I told my general manager that I needed more money for such routine grind and that I'd start looking aggressively for something more in tune with my skills that also paid a bit more on my year and a half mark. Six days after I started the search, I was hired by a Denver-based firm as a senior copywriter. It turns out I'm pretty good at it. Getting a salary for writing words and sentences is sweet, and working from home as the pandemic continues to rage on is smart and comfortable. No longer a slave to the swing shift, my schedule is my own. I can, for the first time in life, my life, when asked what I do for a living, answer, I am a writer. In a career path marked by 10-year gigs followed by gotta-pay-the-bills gigs, it looks like casino manager is the latter and writer is the former. Well, now it's time to write some books, yeah? It's been a year, my friends. Here are the lessons that landed in my 55th anima. Always leave them wanting more. Over the course of my bizarre career as writer, teacher, storyteller, consultant, to refer to my DonHall.Vegas website, I've had a tendency to overstay my welcome. Instead of leaving circumstances on good, ter good terms, by the time I was ready to go, I was all, Fuck these people! What a bunch of dick seeds! And at least a few of the people were, Fuck him! What a dick seed! I stayed one year longer than I should have as a public school teacher. I stayed at least a year too long in my second marriage, and despite some incredible shows toward the end of the WNP theater years, I stayed too long with that company. I should have left WBZ at least a year earlier, and I waited until things got weird in the storytelling scene before leaving Chicago. With the casino, I left long before things became too rote or too sour. I found the new gig, jumped on it, and was told if it didn't work out, I always had a place to land, that I was a part of the station casino's family. My staff bought me booze, and when I swung by just to see them, they were happy to be seen. Hell, the GM even gave me one of the chairs from the craps table for my home office. As I get older, recognizing the signs that perhaps it's time to go is an essential skill. At 55, maybe I'm finally on to that. Second, family is always more important than work. Last year, working the first 24-7, 365 job in my life, I was told I had to work on Christmas. It was the first Christmas in decades I hadn't spent with my family in Kansas. It wasn't bad. Joe flew in from Chicago. He took Dana and I to see Penn Gillette at Rio. Kelly joined Dana and Joe on the casino floor while I worked. Well, this year, especially after the death of my nephew, it became obvious that family had to come first. Months before I landed the writing gig, I let my GM know I was taking the week off of Christmas. COVID be damned. I was, I was clear that if the company couldn't pay me for the time off, I understood. And if I was to be let go because of it, then that was fine too. Well, the casino was incredibly cool about the request that wasn't really a request. In fact, even though I gave my two weeks notice before Christmas vacation pay would kick in, my GM allowed me to be paid for it anyway. See that first lesson again. It was, in every possible way, the correct call. My sister needed me. I needed my mom and dad. We got to reconnect with a cousin I hadn't seen in years. Turns out she's a professional copywriter in Austin, Texas. It was a soul-filling holiday, and I'll never miss Christmas in Kansas again. Three, it's pointless to argue with zealots. I mean, maybe it's in part due to my newfound desert surroundings or my distance from the increasingly woke Chicago art scene, but this last year of Trump and the ridiculous nature of angrier social media has pushed me closer to left-center than full-on progressive. As a younger man, I decided that religion was simply not for me, too emotionally charged without a sense of rationality. 
at the distance Nevada gives me, I can see how irrational both the extreme right, the overtly white nationalist taint with the individualism bordering on sociopathy, and the progressive left, the quasi-religious circular log logic of white privilege, erasure of women as a category, and focus on tribalism overall have become. Or maybe they were always this way, and it just took me some time away from the major urban center to see it. Whatever the case, arguing with either side has become synonymous with filing my teeth with a dremel. Besides being as productive as screaming into an Amazon box, taping it up, and shipping it to Congress, it's fucking annoying. If there's a resolution I'm attempting to adopt in the latter half of my 50s, it is this. Find common ground with everyone, and if I encounter someone so far into conspiracy territory that I cannot... Just walk away and don't look back. Social media enables the very worst in us and me. Now, I can't remember if I shed myself a Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the host of social media this or last year, but I spent most, if not all, of my 55th year absent the noise, and it was an excellent decision. Mobs of imbeciles, canceling professors, trolling J.K. Rowling, threatening violence to strangers, and organizing a breach at the Capitol, all using tools for communication that should be extraordinary, made me hate people I had never met. This cannot be a good chicken soup for the soul arena to spend time in. I'll admit that I do feel left out of the mix some, but I'm happier for it. I jumped back recently with a new LinkedIn account, which is you know, sort of like social media, but with jobs. And the only good thing about that is been able to message Rob Kozlowski. Turns out I'm a social distancing Jedi. Five years ago, Dana threw me a birthday party and there was a room full of friends in attendance. This year, I'll be lucky if even Dana remembers my birthday. The culling effect of both getting rid of social media and the pandemic has been like a hoarder finally ridding, ridding himself of boxes of empty Altoid tins and those square plastic bread ties. Always a bit of a misanthrope, this year has cleared out so much noise and my new gig at home has me isolated from the wash of the unwashed. Turns out I'm good with this. My interactions with people are more intentional rather than surface level, and while life has made me more cautious when it comes to whom I genuinely trust, those whom I do choose teach me things I wouldn't know and enrich my dwindling time on the planet. Your reality is dictated by your optimism. Optimism isn't merely hope. It isn't happiness or a cheery disposition. Optimism is an act of resilience against the brutal harshness of living the existential crisis. It's darkest just before the dawn implies that there will be a dawn, but what if there won't be? What if it's just more dark darkness? If the implacable timpani of human greed, a self-correcting planetary environment, and the algorithm that finds our modern interaction has no end, should that result in giving in to the despair? As optimism is a breeze when things are going your way, despair is the path of least resistance when things turn to shit. Seeing through the mist at a better future takes effort and commitment like a solid marriage or a massive novel you've committed to writing. It's a project to be managed, not a feeling to languish within. One can not truly call himself an optimist who refuses to see the horror. Pretending that people are essentially kind and generous is stuffing the ostrich head in the sand. People are apes with higher brain functions and follow the rules of the jungle. Tribalism, essentialism, war for resources, the history of brutality of all humanity goes far beyond Hannah Jones' 1619 project. Take it in whole, we aren't very enlightened or forgiving as a species. 
Further, optimism is an individual choice. It's not something that can be enforced, but it's something that can be inspired. The American experiment, despite its many missteps and flaws, is grounded in a belief that humans can govern themselves justly and effectively. Given the larger picture, belief in democracy is only slightly more delusional than the guy playing slots so he can pay his rent. The odds are astronomically against success, and yet the choice to persevere is made. When you see someone who has both those death, one of those death camp tattoos on their arm, you are witnessing a genuine, tried and true, bona fide optimist. Optimism is hard when things turn to shit, but it is then when it is most necessary. I learned becoming antique is a journey. For the first time, I see that more of my life has been lived than I have left to live. I recognize that I wish I could give the years I've left to my nephew because I've done a lot in my five and a half decades and he didn't get the chance. I wonder, absent the obsessive drive to achieve I had in my younger days, what I have to offer in the next 10 years. What value does my existence provide to others and how do I manifest that value in pragmatic terms? It's like an old car, a pair of worn out shoes. We all must acknowledge a certain sense of obsolescence. The pandemic has upended so many of the fictions we lived with up until this point, and finding north on the compass is a challenge these days. Becoming irrelevant is like that boiling frog. Slowly and without even recognizing the boil, we all find ourselves as vintage. And perhaps that's what I've become. Not the rusted Coca-Cola sign in the corner, but the like-new vinyl Def Leppard album with slightly tattered and stained liner notes. In my next 10 years, if I have that much time in store or more, I'd like to read more, write a lot more, listen to more live music, be a better husband, become that cool old man in the block with good advice and a snort of rye in case it's a little chilly. Christ, I already smoke a pipe. There's so much more to learn that in order to avoid feeling useless, I just need to learn more. And finally, in a pandemic, look for the simple things to keep you sane. A really well-made sandwich a cold beer in 115 degree weather, a road trip with your soulmate, a book by a new author, a slideshow of you and your soulmate doing things together, a long walk, recognizing that you have a soulmate. Sometimes I wonder if there's anything else. I wonder if I'd miss anything important if I simply cease to breathe on the couch I bought back in Chicago as it sits in Nevada. In those moments of melodramatic existentialism, I remind myself that the experience of living is this annual letter to you a summation of the things I've learned and the life I've lived. If I'd finished this race last year, my mettle would not have been tested by a pandemic. I wouldn't have found my sister again. I wouldn't have seen Trump slink away back to Florida. I wouldn't be sitting in a craps chair in a home office of my design. I wouldn't have learned anything at all, you know, because dead people stop moving forward. Here's to another year, and what adventures I will have. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly podcast featuring stories and thoughts from an arrogant, overly confident white guy. Lots of episodes were recorded while I was living in Chicago, and now I'm in Las Vegas. Check out donhall.vegas for updates, and subscribe at Apple Podcasts.
que sí, compadre. Bueno, pues juega. Pero me vas a ganar feo, man. 